What are some words that you would use to describe our pastor? Faithful, humble, dedicated, serving, all good words. Anything else? Funny, passionate, that's a good one. Loyal. This is the whole sermon, just so you guys know. So would anyone use the word farmer? farmer to describe our pastor or soldier or athlete. I think in, in a roundabout way, we might, we, we can see those analogies, but these might not be the first pictures that come to our mind when we think of our pastor. But these are words that the scripture uses to describe a faithful shepherd of the sheep that uh, we are commanded to consider because they are present in the scripture. So uh, if you don't still have your Bible open to 2 Timothy, please open back up there. And I'm just going to read this passage again so it's, the words are present fresh in our minds as we get started. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses Entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlists him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, we don't need to spend a lot of time talking about the background of this letter. We've spent time in, in the pastoral epistles before, and we're familiar with them. But one thing about uh, the book of 2 Timothy that is a little bit unique, and I think sometimes if Christians think about it, presents a little bit of a challenge, is that this is a, a letter that was written from a pastor to a pastor, primarily about other pastors. And so it, we're even a little more removed from the situation than we ordinarily might be, right? The book of the Ephesian or the letter of, uh, to the Ephesians is written to the whole church of Ephesus. Uh, Galatians is written to the churches in Galatia. Those churches are written to be directed to the, the average Christian sitting in the pew. But the book of Timothy is a little bit different. And so there's, there's kind of a four-tier structure in this book that I think helps us to see not only what it's about, but how it's applied to us. So we see this right in verse, in verse 2 here, uh, or in verse 1 and 2. So there's Paul, who's writing the letter. He's writing it to my, my child, which would be Timothy. And then there's the faithful uh, men whom uh, this teaching is entrusted to. And then there's those who they will teach. So we see here, there's this transmission of the letter from Paul to Timothy, who then entrusts it to the men he's appointing for ministry. 
in Ephesus. And then those men teach this doctrine to the, the congregations. So even though this letter is not written directly to uh, the, the non-pastor in the church, it still has something to say to us. Today, I want to focus mostly on the characteristics of what, uh, what this teaches us about pastors. We can take those and other, you know, other sermons and other Bible studies and apply those principles to the non-pastors in, in our midst. But today, I want to focus on what this teaches us about uh, the pastors themselves. And so the first thing is that a pastor requires strength from the Lord, right? So Paul is not just writing to Timothy to teach him about who to appoint and how to do that. He's also instructing him how to be a pastor himself. And so he opens the passage by saying, you then, my child, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So what we see here is that a pastor receives this grace from the Lord, that it's a special calling, a special anointing, the old Puritan way of saying it is a special unction of the Holy Spirit. It's that, that little extra something that changes a, sermon, uh, changes a speech into a sermon. It's that the, the power that comes from the pulpit is not supplied by the, the force of the pastor's you know, rhetoric or the skill that he shows in studying. All of those things are important. But when we look at a faithful pastor, they're bringing to us the word of the Lord as is given to him by the Lord. And we'll come back to that later on here in the, the passage. Secondly, what we see is that this uh, word that comes to them must be presented to faithful men. It must be entrusted to faithful men. So this doesn't, this doesn't mean uh, just people who are reliable. This is a man who is firm in the faith, who is consistent, who is stable, it's hard to log into Facebook or if you follow any sort of Christian news outlets these days without seeing some sort of high-profile pastor that's been abuse, uh, accused of abuse in his flock. Some of those probably are uh, not legitimate um, accusations, but after lots of investigation, many of them turn out to be quite legitimate, right? So the most recent high-profile case is uh, the church that was formerly led by John Piper is in the middle of a large church rift because one of the pastors demonstrated pretty clear abuse of his authority in a variety of ways. And there are three campus church and uh, one of the campus pastors tried to bring the elder board into the situation and the elder board all kind of rallied around behind this pastor and just sort of circled the wagons instead of actually bringing in investigation and doing all sorts of different things. And these are all pretty well documented. And it's pretty standard fare right now to see these kinds of things in the news. And so a faithful pastor is one who not only is consistent and dependable, but as Paul teaches Timothy in the first letter, is gentle. He's not violent. He's not eager for quarrels. He doesn't relish a fight. He's not greedy. He's able to teach. He's a faithful husband and a competent father. And all of those things are tied into what it is to be called into the pastoral ministry. Because as, as Paul says, if a man cannot manage his own household, how will he care for the family of God? All of those things are wrapped into what it means to be a faithful man and a faithful pastor. And the next thing that we see is that this faithful man also needs to entrust that teaching, not only to the congregation and his uh, responsibility or in his sphere of authority, but also needs to 
appoint others and teach other faithful men to carry on the faith. So we see this uh, in just these opening verses. We already have a pretty robust picture of what it means to be a faithful pastor and what the kind of man that Paul is teaching Timothy to be and the kind of man that Paul is teaching Timothy to entrust the faithful doctrine to. But different people learn different ways. And so Paul, uh, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is kind enough to give us some examples to look at. And so the first example is that of a soldier. And the, the, the word soldier in the scriptures is interesting. Uh, the, the Greek word is where we get our word strategy. So some people think about, um, they think about a soldier as primarily someone who fights. And that's certainly part of what it means to be a soldier. But a soldier in the biblical terms is one who carries out the strategy of the commanding officer. And I think people who've been in the military uh, realize that unless you are the top of the chain, there's not always a lot of uh, independent activity going on. You're given a mission, you're given an order, and you carry that out, even if and when you don't see how that order fits into the larger picture. At times, you just have this tiny little slice of what's going on in the unit or in the battalion, and you have to trust the one who gave you the command to uh, see that that's going to fit into the big picture. So turn over real quick. I just want to point to one other place in the scripture where this kind of plays out. So if you turn over to the book of Matthew, and we're going to look at verse 8, or chapter 8, excuse me, and we're going to read verses 5 through 10. So Matthew 8, 5 through 10. This uh, comes in the, uh, the book of Matthew has a series of speeches and then there's some narrative and then there's some more speeches. And this comes kind of immediately after the Sermon on the Mount, which is the main, sort of the main teaching portion of the book of Matthew. And uh, Christ is in the midst of doing several different miracles and a centurion approaches him. And he says, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such a faith. So although this is a, a descriptive passage of what, what actually happened, it shows us a principle that this centurion came to Jesus, and the, what he was demonstrating as trust was that if Jesus said it would happen, he had faith that it would happen. If Jesus as the one who has all authority in heaven and earth indicates this is the, this is the way it will be, then that is the way it will be. And that's the kind of faith and faithfulness that Jesus points to and says, I haven't seen anything like this in all of Israel. So this gives us a picture of what Paul means when he says that the, uh, the soldier does not get entangled in civilian pursuits. Now, this can sometimes be understood, I think, a little bit incorrectly. Um, there's been all sorts of abuses in the history of the church that have resulted in things like uh, a division between sacred vocation or sacred callings 
and secular callings, right? This was very big in the, the early part of the church in the, the middle, uh, medieval period where you had this idea that, well, there was the average Christian and their jobs were okay. I mean, you have to, you have to buy food and someone has to make the shoes and has to grow the food. But the real Christians, those are the ones that go into the ministry. So people have read this text to think that a good pastor should not be involved in anything besides the work of ministry, whether that's having a family. This is largely where the, the Roman Catholic Church gets the idea of a celibate priesthood. To be fair, there's some passages in Corinthians where Paul says that the, the pastor is unencumbered with the world and taking care of his wife is in a better position than the one who uh, is not. I think that's a discussion for a different day, but I think that that is a, a little bit of a narrow reading of how, how we're to understand what's going on there. But the words here in, in the text actually are probably better translated as something like pragmatic life. The good soldier is not entangled in pragmatic life, in worrying about the nitty gritty of making things work. And when we think about what it means to be a soldier, what we're really getting here is a picture of a good soldier who follows the orders of the commanding officer, right? A soldier who goes into battle with his battalion and just does whatever he wants and does what he thinks is best is not a very good soldier. And that's why Paul follows up here and says, his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So this is not about a pastor who doesn't have a secular job on the side or a pastor who uh, neglects his family because he's so devoted to the work of the ministry. Elsewhere, you know, Paul is pretty clear that a man who doesn't care for his family in practical ways is worse than an unbeliever. So it wouldn't make any sense for us to then think Paul is elevating a man who ignores the needs of his family, right? And then we go on and we see that one of the marks of this soldier is that he shares in suffering. Now, suffering is a, an interesting concept in the New Testament because in, in the, the Roman world, uh, you know, which was marked largely by Stoicism, which is actually uh, something that Paul seems to draw from in other, other contexts, suffering was seen as not just a necessary evil, but just straight up evil. There was never really a good situation to embrace suffering. And the Christian ethic and the Christian uh, worldview flips that on its head. And it's largely because Jesus suffered. We can't look at Jesus as the suffering servant and then somehow think that those who follow in his footsteps will escape from that suffering. We can't recognize the redemptive value of Christ's suffering if we don't also recognize the redemptive value in our own creaturely reflection of that, of our own suffering. And so what we see with this soldier is this picture of a man who gets his marching orders from the Lord, from the Bible, from the revelation of God. He's constrained by the will of God and the teaching of God. And his faithful execution of that ministry is not to invent his own ways to do ministry or to come up with his own insights as to what God is like and what the scriptures teach, but is really to execute that order from the one who enlisted him, who is the chief bishop and overseer of our souls, Jesus Christ. And so we see Paul saying the faithful minister the faithful man who Timothy is to appoint is to be one who is dedicated and sold out to the mission and gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul continues on with another metaphor. Now, when we think of an athlete, you know, we think of uh, 
a baseball player or we think of, you know, a football player, someone in, in professional sports, which is mostly an entertainment kind of a thing in America, right? There's not a lot of people who, um, who look at professional sports as a life or death thing or as a, a you know, a, a matter of national security or national stability. But in the ancient world, um, you know, he's probably referring to something like the Olympic Games or one of the regional games that brought city-states and nation-states together, right? In, in a lot of ancient worlds, there were these kinds of, or ancient times, there was a lot of these kinds of games where often warring factions or, um, you know, kings that had beefs with each other, there would be these times where they would all come together and they would do these games, there were, there were games that were related to drama. There were games that were related to other kinds of things. Most famous of what we think of as the Olympic Games, which carries on and re represents a lot of the same kinds of things in our day that they did in, in the past, right? In, in times of war, even, we see nations come together and their athletes compete at the Olympic Games. And we don't, for the most part, have to worry about whether or not we're going to have spies sneaking in and trying to murder the opposing country's uh, athletes. And in that context, the prestige of winning the crown was not just about a prize. In many ways, it was about the honor of your nation. And there are times in history where we would see two warring, two warring factions or two warring groups. And at the end of it, the war would be over because the winner of the games is sort of seen as the one whose nation won the war as well. So there would be a pause. However, Paul is clear that you can't just win the games by any means that you'd like. So he's not, this is not to be seen as a totally separate kind of instruction from the previous one. He's building on his argument that although you may be able to finish the race faster than anyone else, if you don't do so according to the rules that are set out in front of you, then you don't win the prize. In fact, you actually probably end up far worse off in the context we just talked about if, you're, if your runner is seen to be cheating. Turn over uh, briefly to 1 Corinthians 9, and we're going to see a little bit about this metaphor when Paul uh, kind of deploys it in a different context here. So 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 And he says, do you not know that all run uh, in a race, all runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest I preach to others and I myself should be disqualified. So this continues that picture of, of the faithful soldier and athlete. They're disciplined. They, they do their work. They're diligent in their study. The faithful pastor spends time in prayer, seeking the good of his congregation. All of these things are the rules of the race that a pastor has to follow. And at the end of the day, a pastor is accountable for the, those under his care. We won't turn there, but uh, we see it in, in the book of Hebrews. It says that a pastor gives account for those, for the souls of those under his care. 
And at the end of, uh, at the end of it all in the final analysis, again, just as the soldier does not get to determine the strategy, but simply is expected to follow the orders of the one who enlists him, the runner doesn't set the rules of the race. I suppose there are some races in our world where the, the goal is just get from here to there and there's no, no given route. But most times when, when there's a race set up, you have to follow a particular route. That levels the playing field between all the racers because the, the point of those racers, those races is not about who can figure out the shortest path. It's about who can accomplish the given path quickly. And so the rules of being a pastor that he must follow in order to obtain the crown are set by the judge of the game. So again, we see Paul bringing Timothy back, bringing him back to the fact that God is the one who determines what it means to be a faithful pastor. God is the one that determines how a pastor is to do his ministry. We can draw application to our own Christian lives by recognizing that we don't get to determine what it is that pleases the Lord. I may think that some activity that I'm doing is a good work, but unless God has defined it in his word as something that actually pleases him and it is done in the right motivation and it's done under the, uh, the power of the Holy Spirit, it cannot possibly please God. And the final analogy here that Paul gives us is that of the farmer. As is usually the case and has been several times even just today, we have to not think about farming in our own, our own situation. Most of the time when we think of a farmer, we think of kind of the rugged individual who works his own land and you know, takes part in his own work. But in the ancient world, the farmer really was more like a tenant farmer. Most people who worked a farm did not own their own farm. The, the person who owned the farm was the landowner. We see this in, in some of Christ's parables towards the end of um, Matthew, where he said, you know, he's, he's kind of coming down on the Pharisees for being poor tenant farmers. So he uses the analogy of the landowner who sends first his servant and the, the tenants beat him up. And then he sends another servant, and the tenants beat him up. And the, then he finally sends his own son and the tenants kill his son. Well, that, that parable is teaching us something different, but the structure that we see is that there's a landowner who owns the farm and he employs the farmers to work the ground. And in that situation, it often was the primary pay of that farmer was that he got to reap a portion of the first fruits to do what he wanted with it. Either he would sell it and, and convert it to income, or oftentimes there was subsistence farming where the pay they got was that they were able to live off the land and were able to feed their family. But either way, what this is saying is it teaches us two things. First, that it has to be a hardworking farmer. The lazy farmer doesn't get any share of the crop because there's no crop to have a share of. And so we see that Paul is coming back to this idea. It's a faithful man, a dependable man, a hardworking man who does the work of the ministry as is defined by the Lord for him. And the second thing is that this man reaps a share of the crops. Now, this is not a passage that we would go to to talk about properly paying a pastor or anything like that. There's other places in the scripture to go to for that. What this is talking about is that there is a, there is a, a reaping of the fruit of righteousness that a pastor gets to see. That is part of the joy and responsibility of pastors, seeing that fruit ripen and seeing it harvested and seeing what that does in the life of the congregation. 
And so the hardworking farmer ought to have the first share of the crops. So a, a point of application for us would be to think about is our life reflecting that we're bringing that crop, of course, to the Lord, but is our, is our pastor able to reap that first fruit of our righteousness and the satisfaction that is due to him for that? And we're not perfect. Nobody's going nobody's gonna to say that you're always going to get it right. But if, if we're not living a life that reflects an increase of grace and an increase in the fruit of the Holy Spirit that is reaped and presented to the Lord on our behalf, then we have to start to ask the question of why. And then finally, to close out this passage, Paul sort of turns over to encourage Timothy himself. So he's, he starts out by saying, Timothy needs strength from the Lord in order to, um, to accomplish this goal and this task that's been sent, set in front of him, which is in context to appoint elders. It's a little bit more explicit in Titus, but first and second Timothy and Titus are all kind of interrelated with each other. And Titus is sent to Crete to appoint elders in every town. And so although Timothy is a pastor and he would eventually end up as kind of the bishop of Ephesus, the, the primary sort of permanent pastor in Ephesus, at this phase in his ministry, he's traveling from town to town and he's basically a, a traveling evangelist church planter, which is hard work. It's very hard work to, to do that kind of stuff. So Paul is encouraging him in that task and he's commanding him to appoint people. And he says here, um, in verse seven, think over what I say for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now in your Bible, the paragraph probably ends there. And so it implies that goes with the previous one. And some commentators think that Paul is somehow trying to say, think about these things and, and it'll make sense to you, which doesn't make sense to me because those analogies are all very clear. It doesn't seem like it needs a lot more pondering uh, for Timothy to understand that. I think instead it's better to read verse seven as, as beginning a new line of thinking along with verse eight. So it says, think over what I say for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ risen from, uh, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal. Now, Timothy, we don't have any specific accounts of Timothy facing direct uh, persecution and oppression. We don't, we just don't have that in the Bible. There's not accounts of that. Like there are with some of the other apostles and disciples in church history, but we know that Paul promises him. He will run into tribulation if he seeks to live a godly life in Christ. And so, so Paul here reflecting on his own situation, he's writing in prison. This is likely the imprisonment immediately prior to his death. We're not sure from, from the historical record, whether you know, when we see in Acts, he goes to Rome. He may have been in Rome and that was his last imprisonment. And then he was executed. Um, the timeline works a little bit better with some other factors. If he was released and went to Spain for a while and then came back and was in prison a final time. But all of that to say, Paul is writing here literally in chains. This isn't a metaphor, right? Paul's done with the metaphors at this point and he's literally writing in chains. And that gives us an example of what a pastor does. What a faithful man who is appointed and trusted to teach the faith once delivered to the saints does is even under suffering, 
even under chains, whether they're literal chains of imprisonment, which is happening all over the world, or whether they're figurative chains of suffering, or at times chains of limitations on your own life and your own desires and your own goals. I think every, every pastor that I've talked to would, would love to have a big church and a vibrant preaching ministry and would love to have staff that takes care of all of the nitty gritty details of running the business of the church. But most pastors don't have that. Most pastors spend their weekends fixing the lawnmower or installing a new sink or painting a new room or vacuuming the carpet at the church. That's what most pastors do. That's its own kind of binding, its own kind of chains. There are other things that pastor I'm sure would love to do that would forward the mission of the gospel. But the pastor doesn't set his own marching orders. But all of that said, Timothy here is encouraged by Paul that the word of God is not bound. So we sometimes think that the limitations that a pastor finds themselves in, that those are limitations on what they can accomplish, that what, what the word of God can do. But Paul is here to say, no, that's not true. The word of God never goes out void. It always accomplishes exactly what it intends to do, exactly what God intends it to do. Sometimes that is on a very limited local scale. Sometimes that's on a very broad global scale, but it never comes back void. And so this faithful man who is to be appointed to teach the faith endures everything for the sake of the elect. If we had, um, if we had more time, we would turn to Colossians 1 uh, verses 24 through 26, which is one of the most uh, confusing and difficult passages to understand. Uh, Paul says that he fills up the suffering of Christ in his own body for the sake of the elect, which all sorts of people have taken to understand as some sort of purgatory or some sort of meritorious suffering where the saints can you know, obtain our forgiveness or something along those lines, which is not what the text is saying. We see closer here to what is meant, that the pastor endures everything for the sake of the elect in order for the elect to obtain salvation, not because somehow the pastor's suffering brings and gives the salvation to those people, but because the pastor, through his suffering, brings the word of God to the people. It's not, it's not the treasury of merit of the Roman Catholic Church. It's not the, the, you know, the kinds of similar things we see even now in some Protestant circles that have to do with purgatory and the prayers for the dead. It's not that. It's that the word of God is not bound by the suffering of the pastor. And in most cases, the word of God is actually enhanced to us by the context and the suffering in which it comes. A pastor who comes to us and encourages us when we're discouraged at work who doesn't have a nice cushy office and lots of leisure time is a lot better for our souls than the pastor with a seven figure salary who drives a Mercedes and has a private jet. To know that our pastor struggles with the same kinds of things that we do, whether it's family or whether it's finances or any other thing, health and then you name it to know that our pastor can can suffer with us and suffer in the same way enhances his ability to bring us the word of God. And so this, this paints a picture 
for us of the faithful pastor. This paints a picture of us of what it is that the Lord has given to the church as a gift. Right? That's why we had our call to worship was a modified version of Ephesians 4, that the Lord ascended into heaven after his, after his resurrection and brought captives with him and sent gifts to the church. And that those gifts were the offices of teacher, you know, evangelist, prophet, apostle, and shepherd teacher. So when we look at our pastor, especially on Pastor Appreciation Sunday, but any Sunday, any day of the week, we should recognize that he is a gift to us. That he has been given to us as a gift from the Lord. And to show appreciation to him is to show appreciation to the Lord. So this, this letter is here for us. Paul has given us this so that we can appreciate what we've got. We can appreciate what it is the Lord has given us and that we can live our lives in light of that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have done what is necessary for us to have what we need to attain the full maturity in Christ. And we know that you could have simply changed us in an instant. You simply could have transformed our lives with no process, but you chose not to. So we trust that in your infinite wisdom, that your decision to, to bring us further in conformity with your son through the work of our faithful pastor is a wise and good decision. So we thank you for our pastor. We thank you for the ministry of this church that you have granted to us. We pray that we would reap a bountiful harvest of righteousness that would first and foremost bring glory to you, would secondarily bring our pastor great joy and satisfaction. We pray in Jesus' name, the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.